Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. Your world-weary warrior has returned. Returned from travels in Canada and Germany to the likes of Andrew DeBroy's wedding, who you might know from previous episodes of Feckin' Metal, such as the Virtual Eleven review series, which is not yet finished. I still have to do the song, Don't Look to the Eyes of the Stranger, or A Stranger, as it's correctly called, which is coming soon. And also, um, the Virtual Eleven, the Senjutsu review from 2021. And then Keep It True in Germany, which I was at as well. I'll give you my thoughts on that shortly, but not on this episode. But this episode focuses on the band Nor'easter. You might have seen me tweet about them in the last while. Uh, They are a comeback story to end all comeback stories. They're a band who recorded and wrote an album in the 80s. Uh, finally got it recorded in 1989, but didn't release it until now, in 2022. Sounds like the things that podcast episodes are made of. Does it not? Yes, it does, and I'm glad you asked. And yes, it does. You're right as well, in your answer. So, this is their story. This is Andrew and Chris. They did their thing in the 80s. Things happened in their lives. Life happened. And you can listen for their charismatically told story about why they didn't make it, and what got in the way, and why they decided to unearth these 33-year-old recordings and release an album in 2022. So, I hope you enjoy it. This is Andrew and Chris from Nor'easter. All right, so I have Christopher and Andrew from Nor'easter. And you can correct me immediately, by the way, if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Um, what 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 is a Nor'easter? Nor'easter in... in New England lore, New, and that's kind of where I am from, and is the northern New England, uh, I'm in New Hampshire, um, a nor'easter is a rather nasty storm. Um, winds, rain, lightning, pestilence, you, know, you name it. So yeah, it, it is just a really nasty storm. Sailors lament. <laughs> okay, because I, I told my girlfriend I was recording with a band called Nor'easter, and she said that she recognized the term, but it, does it also refer to people from a particular geographical region as well, or is it just a, a weather kind of thing? No, it's, it's, she's maybe getting that a little bit, like, overlapped with a Downeaster, okay. um, which, which is a, which is a northern, northern Maine uh, resident, which interestingly enough, you know, down Easter and it's, they're from the most Northern part of the state. So, um, Maine's a little weird. <laughs> okay. So, but Nor'easter is a storm anyway. Okay. Well, glad we cleared that up. So as I said, sorry, in the intro, um, I'm here with Chris and Andrew from the band Nor'easter. Why don't you tell the listeners what you both do in the band, please? Well, I was the, uh, vocalist, um, was never let near an instrument for good reason, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my role. The only thing I really got to play was occasionally I, I got to, to tap a cowbell. Um, and, and that was really kind of about my speed as far as in, instruments go. So, Very good. And Andrew? I played guitar. And uh, I, I was the principal songwriter, I guess, too. Um, so when we would be jamming and kind of creating the tunes the drummer and i would sort of pound around with some riffs and some ideas and a lot of times i sort of had the bass part kind of in my head too 
um, but all of the all of the acoustic and electric guitar parts. And then when when we did the album, I actually played the bass because it was two years after our final show. So um, anything with strings on the album, I had something to do with. Okay, so it's interesting that you, you're referring to this in the past tense. So this is an album that was written in the mid-80s, recorded in 1989, but hasn't been released until 2022. So please give us a bit of background on how that happened and why you've decided to release these songs um, more than 30 years later, I think. Right. Or no, is it 30 years later? Yeah, it'd be 33 years later. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll take that one. Um, when when the band split up, it was I I really think that Nor'easter's story is much like a, every band's story in that we worked hard, we had great ideas, we had fans in our local area, and and you know we we wanted to do our own thing as opposed to being part of the cover band circuit um, that was prominent in eastern Connecticut. We're kind of like halfway between New York and Boston when we were doing this. And so, um, you know, we put a lot of time into it and, and there were not a lot of places to hear original hard rock and heavy metal there either. So we, uh, we have the distinction of having never played an indoor show. All of our shows were wildcat uh, keg parties out in the middle of nowhere until the cops showed up kind of thing. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but, but we had written an album's worth of tunes and that's what we were playing um, pretty much by the, by the time that last show came around. Um, and we, we are not long after that, the drummer got married cause his, his girlfriend and he were expecting. And so life intervenes and that's the story of thousands of bands, right? It's like you have these, these dreams that you work for and then life kind of says, well, you know, it's time to, time to grow up and be responsible and all that. So we had a friend who we met the next year who had a, an eight track reel to reel studio in his basement, actually a four track cassette studio. And he bought the eight track reel to reel that summer while we were in there recording. So it's like, Oh, we can record twice as much. Awesome. So, uh, we had a chance to preserve our, our, our music. Now in 1989, you know, you have a little bit of digital gear, but it's tape. It's like three guys standing over a mixing board, turning knobs and stuff. And we didn't have budget. We didn't have a record label. We didn't have any of that. So we did the best mix that we could. And off we went on our separate ways, doing our separate things. I've been a touring acoustic singer songwriter, kind of like Richard Thompson or, you know, something, you know, along the folky kind of lines for almost 30 years now. And when the pandemic happened, I everything stopped. You know, my entire career, my reason for being, everything just stopped. And so uh, I started thinking about the Nor'easter recording. And the drummer, the other founding member of the band, passed away in 2002. And it was kind of sudden. And it's always been sort of nagging at me. We were best friends from childhood. And it's like, you know, his legacy is sitting on a bunch of discs in my attic. And, mm. you know, if ever there was a time we were going to do something with this project, this is that now. And... Um, Long story short, here we are, having spent the last year cleaning up and restoring these recordings from tape. And when you hear them now, they sound like they fit right there in the sweet spot on a lot of that 80s hard rock and metal radio. And the response that we're getting from people who are hearing it has just been enormously gratifying. But I have to say it's a, it's a big sense of relief, too, because I, I can rest easy now. We've, we've, done, we've done his work. 
we've done his legacy. Very good. Okay, so both of you were in the original band then. You, you said your drummer passed away. Who else was in the band? Were, were there more people as well? We had been through uh, three bass players. Um, you know, We started originally when we were still kind of doing cover tunes and a little bit of original music worked in. You know, We had a bass player. Um, really wasn't working out for us with the band in the original music that we were doing. Um, he was really good at what he what he did, and he really enjoyed doing the cover type tunes. But he really wasn't going to be a good fit for our original music. Um, so we moved on, came on with a second bass player um, who also uh, passed away very young. Um, not while he was in the band. Um, we had kind of moved on. We had another friend of ours that played bass. He was in another band. We had our eyes on him for a little bit of like, you know, he would be a better fit for our band um, <laughs> kind of thing. And it worked out. Um, we were able to bring him on board, um, kind of just swapping them out. There was really no, not a lot of hard feelings between the the second bass player. Um, and then again, sadly, you know, he passed away very young as well of natural causes, just very unexpected. Um, our current third bass player who was our touring bass player paul sanamore um we are still in touch with him on a regular basis throughout this kind of project um unfortunately he didn't actually play any bass on the recordings he was really just our touring bass player okay yeah it's been wonderful to reconnect you know and share not only the uh the memories and all of that but the new experience of like hey man this 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 thing is actually gonna happen this is crazy how cool is this we're getting to share our music with people in ireland people around the world people from back in connecticut and there's a there's just been a, a lot of reconnecting like that that i don't think any of us really ex were thinking about that emotional part of it when we when we started doing it it's just like ah man we finally get to finish this recording how nice is that no new recording all all just restoration and mixing and and making it sound you know like sound like it belongs where it belongs very good so you you mentioned you did a lot of outdoor gigs but never an indoor one so what are we talking about like how many how many concerts or gigs do you have under your belt are we talking like uh could I count them on one hand, or are we talking more than that? Possibly two hands. <laughs> two hands. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah two you hands. might you might need an extra finger or two. I think. Okay, but so you weren't. So what I'm trying to get at, sorry, is that you weren't a touring band. It was it was more of a like um, maybe a labor of love or something like that. And by the time things got serious, then as you said, Andrew, life got in the way. We were always serious about it. It's just we had no money. Okay. <laughs> you know, to be able to do anything like, you know, it would have been really cool to be able to go to Boston or New York where there was a scene, you know, and there was a, there was, but to be able to do that, you had to have some gear. You had to have some resources and all that. And just about the time that we were getting enough gear so that when we played live, it sounded good. Um, we were, you know, that was, that was pretty much around the end, unfortunately. But did you have aspirations? Did you have aspirations to be a touring band? Did you have aspirations in the eighties to release this album? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When, cool. uh, when we finally got into the studio, you know, in 89, even, you know, we were kind of thinking like, Hey, you know, maybe we can do something with this. Um, and then 
of course, like what, you know, what do you do with, you know, a four track and an eight track recording when you don't have any money to really produce anything. And so, you know, I've had, you know, a hand pressed CD probably since 1989 when I got, you know, a hold of the master tracks and ran it through some, you know, audio software on my, my computers at the time, whether it was a desktop or, you know, beginning stages of laptops back then, you know, you run it through some, some audio processing and you know, try to clean it up a little bit, you know, de-hiss it, get some probably of the noise out. Tree days or something, did it? Or? Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> and, the, and the files were, you know, took up half the hard drive. Um, but uh, so I've had a, a you know a rough pressed CD you know in in my collection you know since then. Um, so now to hear it, you know you listen to the two side by side, and I listen to the first one and go, wow, that's that's what it sounded like back then. How huh? people listen to that? Okay, now I hear it and go, <laughs> now I can see you know maybe people saw this on a different different plane than I did because I, you're all you're. I think I'm my own worst critic and my own harshest critic. So, uh, you know, maybe I see it a little differently, but, you know, I hear it now and I, and it's something to be proud of. Absolutely. I'm sure everybody's their own worst critic. I can't listen to myself half the time. Um, but so did you like when you had this pressed CD or when you had this finished album, did you approach record labels or did you try to sell it off to people or not sell it off, but did you try to, um, I don't know, promote it in a way that it might get taken up by, by a record label or anything like that? Well, you know, I, I've been in the music business now for the the advent and, and, and demise of CDs. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the MP3s replaced by the streaming, uh, streaming audio era. Um, what does a record label in 2022 really do is a, Sorry. Is a very good question. What I meant was back in 1989. Did you, ah. did you shop it around to people? No, because we were never happy with it. You know, it was always like uh, a good demo. It was a good demo. But, you know, they would, in, in that era and in that locale too it'd be like well where are you playing I'll, maybe we'll come see you kind of thing you know mm. you you, you kind of had to be in front of a, of a talent scout doing a live show because that was how you promoted everything you yeah. know nowadays in the in the internet era you know things are so much different now that you know we're able to one of the things that was cool is while we were doing the mixing we'd have live streams on youtube from the studio to preview a couple of tunes yeah Yeah, and it was great fun i mean it was just uh and and there's no there's no middle involved you know it's a it's a completely organic diy kind of thing now but then that was that was really there was a pipeline there was a very strict kind of process and you had to get by gatekeepers to do those things and and if you were not a touring band not named steely dan that was pretty darn difficult (laughs) <laughs> and right now we're reeling in the years from 1989 <laughs> to 2022 um no right okay so you've got this demo you recorded it in 1989 you didn't maybe have the right connections to promote it to shop it around the place and then as you said life got in the way but listening back to this it doesn't sound to me it doesn't sound like a relic it sounds like all sorts of different things, actually. I think there's influences coming in from all over the place. And what I'd like to ask you, actually, because I've written my own notes on this, but I'd like to hear it from both of you, is who were your influences at the time and maybe even growing up? And 
who inspired you to want to write your own music? I don't know who wants to take that. <laughs> I'll let you go first on that one. Yeah, because I, I, I did more of the writing. I guess I'll tackle that one first. But um, I, I grew up in a musical household, so there were always bands rehearsing in my basement from the time that I was you know, first aware of anything. I remember hearing people singing harmonies to cover tunes like Beatles and Doobie Brothers and Santana and all of all, this like big diversity of stuff. So I grew up hearing a lot of things, but sort of from a melodic kind of standpoint so when I started writing songs it was probably about a week after I started playing guitar and I could finally play an E chord and I just moved it up and down the neck <laughs> you know until, until I found something I liked the sound of so I was like 12 or 13 and I was already kind of liking the idea of making stuff up mm. so by the time Nor'easter happened so we got together first in 1984 so there were probably two or three big things that, that really kind of moved me in a different direction. One was the summer of 78, that first Van Halen record, man. Everybody's rolling down the road with their windows down, cranking Van Halen. It's like the world changed. But then when, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I guess, is when Ozzy's first album came out, the first solo album. And here's Randy Rhodes. And now it's like... Okay, now we're we're doing some really cool stuff with the guitar, and like I wanted in, and I it took a while to get so I could play things, and because again you have to sort of have the right processing to get those kinds of sounds too. And I, here I am noodling around with uh, you know a Fender amp in my bedroom and trying not to get my parents to come in and yell at me because it's too damn loud, you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah. when 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 we got to the nor'easter time frame we were listening to a lot of the blizzard of oz you know the first two albums maiden priest van halen deep purple deep purple was having their resurgence album oh yeah that same Perfect year Strangers, too. Yeah. yeah and and just all of that sound kind of really got into our heads a lot and it you know I, i'm lucky that i can sit with a guitar and not really think about it for too long and start noodling on something some little idea comes along and and we would build ideas like that from little jams at rehearsals and and i think that's how probably two-thirds of what we wrote came about mm. I, I definitely was a, a strat guy from the get-go and always have been sort of enamored of different strat players but as far as influences go i kind of Every every one of those guitar players had a sense of melody about what they were doing as well as the flash. And I mm -hmm. think in terms of constructing solos and constructing songs and riffs, I kind of I kind of was more influenced by that than say, you know, Metallica was kind of getting to be big around the same time too and that was a little bit different direction. Yeah. That's my story anyway. <laughs> The name Randy Rhodes came up in my notes quite a lot, actually, as I was taking notes on the song. So that's interesting to hear you say that. Uh, and what, what about you, Chris? What were, what were your musical influences? Yeah, so for me, it was like a whole different story. I was never really, you know, growing up, I was not a musical child. Uh, I was a, an athletic sports kind of kid, um, you know, played everything and, you know, played hard at everything. Um, Drew and I got to be friends when we were very young, um, you know, in our early teens, um, through, you know, some, some other avenues, um, you know, we were camping and hiking friends before, long before we became bandmates. When we, okay. when we became old enough to drive, 
um, and could actually, because we never really lived all that close to one another either. Um, we were about an hour and a half, two hours from each other at all times. Um, and so when we got old enough to drive and could actually, you know, visit one another and, and hang out every so often, um, I would just kind of, you know, be singing along to, you know, the radio in my car, you know, tape player in my car. And as a vocalist or, you know, uh, or, you know, before vocalist, um, for some reason, I always kind of gravitated towards bands that had very powerful vocals. So Iron Maiden, Dio, um, you know, Deep Purple, you know, and even, you know, back in the Coverdale days and Whitesnake, um, mm. all of these bands that had just incredibly powerful vocalists um, seem to be more like interesting to me. Um, certainly love, you know, the music that, you know, in all of those bands as well. And, you know, I, I can't say it's, it's just because of the vocalist, but I really enjoyed the vocals and I tended to shy away from bands that, I didn't really think the vocals were all that good um, or all that that interesting and strong. It, Jeff Tate was another big influence in Queensryche. Um, one, I, I thought, you know, some of his writing and lyrics were really interesting, uh, but his voice was also powerful. Um, yeah, and unique. And so I would just kind of be jamming along in, in my car to the car stereo and, you know, Drew Hurt, you know, would come up and, and we'd, you know, Go, would be hanging out for the, for a weekend or whatever um, and had heard me kind of jamming in the car and, and proposed, you know, a visit down to his place, his house down in Connecticut um, because he had a couple of friends that were also musicians, a drummer and a bass player. And we should do this jam. We should get together and jam um, kind of thing. And, and yeah. I thought, yeah, that sounds like fun. You know, it's something I've never done before. It's a little out of my comfort zone, you know, having other people around other than just myself or, you know, maybe, you know, the two of us in, in a car or playing acoustically, at, at, you know, at a cabin somewhere while we were away for the weekend, you know, really away for the weekend to, to get drunk and, you know, play, play some acoustic music. But um, we got together, you know, down in Connecticut with, you know, Matt and the original bass player, Doug um to do this jam session um it just kind of came together after that i mean it, it, it took me a little bit to, to you know drew kind of i blame him and thank him all at the same time for, dra <laughs> for, for dragging me in um and, and kind of not letting me weasel my way out and go no this isn't for me because um, I, I wouldn't have changed anything I, I had a great time but so can I ask, had you sung before this? Were you a natural singer or was this your first attempt at singing? That was like, like, having only kind of maybe sung in the car. That was it. Just, singing? you know, when I was really young, I, I played drums in a marching band in school. Uh, you know, I was, a, okay. I, I was a snare drummer. Th that's something we don't have in Ireland. We don't have marching bands. Oh, we, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, and it was terrible. Um, you know, I, I Thank God there were no recordings of that ever, um, because I'm sure it was absolutely terrible. Um, but no, never, never. For me, it was always just a sport. I was, like I say, a sports kid. Um, I was very okay. comfortable being in front of people, on, on put me on any athletic field, and I was more than comfortable being in front of people doing something that I felt I was good at, which was hmm. sports, baseball, football, you know, hockey, you know, all of the big, you know, American sports, basically, in Canadian, Canadian yeah, yeah, hockey. Yeah. But um, singing for me was a whole new 
new avenue and and it uh, it took me a little bit you know to uh to shake out of you know the the really nervous aspect the terror. of it and the and the terror, the terror of, of absolutely actually, yeah of being on a microphone in front of people um you know mm. i wasn't in my car i wasn't in the protection of my my car <laughs> where i could roll the windows up and you know people might be able to see me looking silly you know singing in a car but um they couldn't hear me uh, so to be on a mm. microphone on a stage it was was new to me it's interesting to me because i've interviewed many bands and the number of times where like a singer happens almost by accident or you know it's not somebody who was a naturally gifted singer or had previous experience singing it probably like is mar- far more frequent than the number of times where you get the likes of a Bruce Dickinson who's like, oh, I wanted to be Ian Gillen, you know, the first time I heard Child in Time or something like that. Um, And it's interesting to hear that you're saying that as well, because I find like, in my experience, most singers come from people who have never sung before. And then all of a sudden they try. And then all of a sudden it, it, it like it works out and it works out for the best. But um, it, it makes you wonder how many good singers there are out there who've never tried. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and you tend to find people who have a little bit more unique voices, too. I love Chris's voice for a whole lot of reasons, but it's definitely the voice of Nor'easter. You know, the the whole... Um, just the the tone there's there's melody there but there's there's grit to it too Mm -hmm. and yet he doesn't sound to me a whole lot like any particular singer i hear bits and shreds of you know ian gillen here and you know maybe a little halford there once in a while but you know it's kind of his own thing and i'm not sure that that happens quite so readily when you have somebody who's been like working and studying the craft and really aiming at, at, you know, this is the kind of sound I want to go for. It's like, well, what kind of sound do you have? And let's build around that. Yeah. I couldn't pin it to any particular singer either, actually. And it's interesting that you say that. Um, As I was listening to the album, I was like, I can't think of anyone in particular that this sounds exactly like. There were instances, small little instances, like you said, or maybe a person here and there, but like overall, no, I couldn't. So, all right, let's fast forward. So, you were in the band in 1989. Things didn't happen for you then. Lockdown happened and you decided to finish or polish the recordings, let's say. Um, and then you released your album to the world recently. You said the reaction has been great. But like, what is, is there is there a goal here? I know I, from messaging you, Andrew, I know you said you're not really interested in doing gigs or anything like that. But like, when you release something like that to the world and let's say it gets a positive reaction, are you open to opportunities or what What would you like to happen from this? That's a great question. Um, you know, it, I, I'm at a stage in my life and my musical career now where I feel like being open to possibilities is sort of the 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 default right but there are a lot more things even now with music that sounds like this than what i've done as a recording artist as a as a solo singer songwriter for the last 25 years and so i i'll be the first one to say you know i'm not not at all going to say that I know exactly how, what kinds of opportunities there are here. I've been talking to people. Um, I've got some friends who've been doing things with film, um, would love to 
put some effort into uh, and getting getting our music in front of some some film and TV supervisors for sure. Um, but the, it kind of builds a little bit from the grassroots too, and and the more that people are hearing it. And by the way, thank you for having us on here and sharing our music with your listeners. Um, you know, we're we're kind of at the the point where we've been meeting more and more people, and you can things drop in your lap sometimes sort of out of the blue somebody will write a note because they heard it on spotify or something and 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 so uh as far as having a an overall plan for what to do with it we have we have another ep's worth of material we were writing for the second album before we finished the first one okay we released everything that we had recorded but the the possibilities of you know doing things together yeah we're we're talking about getting together and and doing some things we're we've got some film from our last show that we've been that fell in our lap 35 years later literally we got it last november and wow. that's kind of cool because it 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 not only catches us in front of uh, a hometown crowd uh uh, there's a whole there's a whole story to that too, but um, it's also it, it's kind of part of that whole every band story, you know. It, it's there's there's a lot there that I think anyone who's worked at being in a band and trying to make something happen and all of that um, that that story seems a little bit more universal than I had thought when we would started doing this. So we're talking about getting together in the in the studio and and uh, you know doing some doing some work on that and maybe doing a little bit of music while we're there and and we're just kind of open to the possibilities. Um, and if people are hearing us today and are enjoying what they're hearing, um, you know, please do ring our bells and hit the hearts and the thumbs up and the likes and the follows and all of that stuff. And who, who knows what we might make happen. Very good. So if you do, let's say, go in to record what you say is an EP's worth of material, would you fill out the band with new musicians or how would you go about that? I think that... Uh, Paul would be in in a flash. Um, yeah. I, I don't think we would have any work to, to get bass player on board. As far as drums, it's hard. Matt was the engine of Nor'easter. When he passed away in 2002, uh, and it'll be 20 years in about a week, um, his son was 11. His son has inherited his drum set. His son has only played original music in all the time that he's been drumming. And of course, you know, he's he's in his early 30s, so their musical vibe is a little different than ours, but mm. rocks hard and uh it would be it would be a really special thing to to see how it sounded. I've had a chance to jam with him once and it was really okay. it was really pretty cool. Pretty emotional, but really really pretty special. So, so like, if uh, we were going to do that, it'd be kind of like, you know, dragging Jason Bonham into... I was just going to say... fill his dad's <laughs> shoes, right? <laughs> I was going to say like a Jason Bonham situation there. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Very good. All right. Before we discuss the album, I'd just like to ask you, how do you categorize yourself? Because to me, listening to the album, it, it, it's not an easily... Um, it, it's not an album that's easily categorizable. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word. Yeah. Uh, but what what music genre would you say you fit into? I'll let you handle that one because that was, I, I've often wondered that myself. So we're we're a little <laughs> we're a little bit like 
all over the place. You know, we, we've had folks reference us to like adult oriented rock, um, you know, kind of melodic rock. Um, we've had other people say, you know, kind of hard rock. Um, we're a little bit all over the place, depending on which track you're listening to as to, you know, kind of where it fits. So it fits in a bunch of different places. Um, that's about, about the best I can come up with. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it is, it is difficult. It, it's probably due to my uh, short attention span and any sort of style of writing, you know, it's like one thing next to another, to another. And I can say that listening to the album, I sort of get the sense that we were three bands in one. You can definitely okay. hear the 70s influences in some of our stuff, like Rush and Zeppelin mm. and Purple, um, for sure. Um, and you can definitely hear some of that Blizzard of Oz, you know, early 80s Maiden kind of thing going on with some of what we were doing, too. And I think it, one thing that happened while we were together and while we were writing was, like, the whole MTV gravitating towards hairband metal, you know, all of a sudden you could have commercial radio playing metal bands, you know, here's like poison and Cinderella. And, you know, there's this whole host of, so mm. we, we really wrote a couple of songs kind of aiming our style at that sort of, Hey, if we write something with some catchy hooks, you know, like won't play the fool anymore, for instance, or like a yeah. fallen angel, those, those tunes kind of fit in that, you know, you're going to, you're going to be humming those after you've heard them for a little while. Mm. That's very much what I got as well. I, I have references to Rush, Def Leppard, maybe, and uh, definitely Randy Rhodes. Um, so that's interesting that you say that. Um, <clears throat> so the opening song uh, on the album, Fare Thee Well or Calm Before the Storm, it seems to be an instrumental and then an actual song following. Um, <clears throat> very folky intro. Uh, and then about 50 seconds in, I think it's like, it's heavy metal. So that's a good example of what I'm talking about here. It's like, uh, where are we? I'm not. Qu I'm not quite sure. Are we in a prog album? I don't know. Oh shit! It's heavy metal. <laughs> I, I initially wrote. It seems to be literally about a storm. Um, just looking at the lyrics because you kindly sent them on to me. But um, there was a passage that stood out to me. Then it was like, how a man tries to control his destiny, but the north wind still blows as she pleases. Do you dare upset the natural ordering? Lightning bolts are real coming forth to deal with all their might. To me, that's like a metaphor for uh, something personal that's gone on in your personal life and you're using the metaphor of weather to um, to write about it. Is that, is that, am I on the right track there? Or, or was it just about a storm? 
Well, we were all young men, and and there were always young women around. So anything is possible <laughs> when it comes to comes to the tumult of the heart, right? But we also, um, you know, living in New England, you every year or two, um, somebody get lost at sea. And you know, right. this okay. sort of so like, literally lost at sea, not, yeah. not in a metaphorical sense. Yeah, and and so uh, you know, there there was there were definitely things that kind of were bubbling beneath the surface of that. Around the time, the early '80s, there was a pretty pretty raging cocaine epidemic going on in Eastern Connecticut, where I was from, and uh, and we did lose people that way they they may not have died but they really became a shell of themselves and so the the storm is definitely more than just the the literal storm but yeah you know you stand you stand on the coast of massachusetts or maine when one of those nor'easters is coming in you you definitely know that you don't want to be out there floating around on anything right so this is before i knew a nor'easter was an actual storm i didn't actually look any of this up before i started because i thought it'd be best to ask you um so that's very interesting i didn't know an, an nor'easter was a storm it kind of lends more uh credibility to the lyrics then but uh, i also liked when you said out at out at sea a sailor's watery grave is made cruel wind and water take my life fool not with the power of the nor'easterly my lad wind and waves crash down death will take you if you stay um so that seems to be very much about an actual storm but who knows maybe it's about the people who are succumbing to cocaine addiction as well i didn't write any of that so uh you know all right i i, I just got handed some <laughs> lyric sheets and said hey these are the lyrics you're gonna sing them okay uh, off we go um i i had part writing part in in only one of the the tracks on, on the cd so um and that one wasn't one of them so <laughs> All right. I like to go deep into lyrics. Sorry if I make you feel left out here. Chris. No, not at all. <laughs> I won't go. He's the one who gave deep. him voice. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, he's the one who gave him voice. Ha- on a side point that you've just brought up there, how does it feel to to sing lyrics that you haven't written yourself? Are you a writer, Chris, or not at all? Do you prefer to just not be at given, all. I, given handed lyrics? Um, I, I always enjoyed being handed the lyrics. Um, I had a little bit of fun with the the one track that I, I you know. Drew was a little bit stuck at one point, like, all right, how do we, where do we go? You know, I'm at this point in the song, um, you know, where do we go with it? And and so I did get to try to, you know, use my, use my brain a little bit and try to come up with some stuff that I thought fit in with, you know, what else was already written. But yeah, I never minded just, you know, being handed the lyric sheet. Um, I certainly did get to read them over, um, offer any input of like you know wow that really doesn't make any sense why am i singing that or um (laughs) or no hey that sounds that's that sounds pretty good you know i don't know what the meaning is all behind it um a lot of times i didn't ask is just do as you do as i'm told like you're you're being your job is to sing what i write so here you go Um, and i was perfectly fine with that okay i have two questions follow-up questions one is did you care what the lyrics meant um, in some, in some instances, yeah, there, there were certainly times where, you know, it was like a head scratch or like, why am I singing that? I mean, it just, just sounds kind of silly. Um, and so we'd change them up a little bit, uh, or Drew would change them up a little bit, um, based on, you know, my kind of just 
confusion of to, as to why I was singing a particular line or you know why something was the way it was. Um, so I did get a little bit of you know input in that sense, but um, not to the point where I was actually going to write the lyrics. It's like it's okay. kind of your this is this is your brain child, and, and you know these are your lyrics. I don't I, you know I'm not going to write them, but having a little bit of input and creative input, you know, as to whether or not I thought they were, you know, should be there was perfectly fine. I, you know, that fit right. Perfect for me. Very good. Second question is, did you write the vocal melodies? No, no, nope, nope. All, it was okay. all, so, all done by uh, the other man on the, on the interview here. Um, <laughs> and again, just, you know, we would kind of go over things and he'd, kind of belt them out a little bit first to give me kind of an idea as to where we were headed. And then it was just a lot of trial and error, you know, like I'd get the lyrics and hear the music that was with it. And it would be just kind of tweaking things as we went along until we felt we were comfortable with, Hey, this sounds pretty good. This is what we'll stick with. Okay. Very good. All right. In a lot of cases in bands that works very well, I'm I'm thinking of Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath. Uh, Famously, Geezer Butler wrote the lyrics, uh, and may or may not have allowed Ozzy to write the vocal melodies. It's kind of up for discussion, but um, that worked out well for them. So who who's to question that formula? Um, at the end of this, the notes for that song, I said, uh, great guitar uh, solo. Is it heavy metal? It doesn't matter. <laughs> 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 okay, I'll take that. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah uh the chemical zone it was an interesting one to me because initially i was like reading these lyrics I was like is this about the chernobyl disaster and then i looked that the lyrics were written in 1985 and i think that the chernobyl disaster was 1986 but it seems to very specifically refer to a chemical disaster so could you lend some insight to that andrew love canal okay 191978 was kind of the and, and i i think that i was uh took my first environmental science class at at college that same year and so I was sort of you know finally getting to dive into something else that I was interested in in school um, because most of the time school wasn't all that interesting but um, when you're paying for it you pay for things you're interested in right so uh, I I had learned a bit about that and and it's funny because it could easily be about Chernobyl it could be Mm. about a, a you know a couple dozen different places when when we put together the video for it um I we did some scrounging around for a while to get some imagery and they're one of the most toxic places in all of America is near um one of the Native American reservations out in Oklahoma and that song could have been for them, you know, lead poisoning for them. It's like all of these different things that that sort of that story kind of resonated with. But mm. um, it was it was pretty much Love Canal that kind of um, kicked it kicked it into gear. And it's cool that it's sort of when you write a song and it's sort of inspired by something, and years pass and you look back on it and you see that it sort of had legs to stand on for for more than just that one specific thing. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's transferable to a number of different disasters, I suppose, over the years. Um, be nice if there one, weren't any new ones. Yeah, <laughs> there was a vocal line that stood out to me there, Chris. It was like, uh, the lives of our children, some die in the womb. They're born just to be encased in society's endless tomb. I thought that was delivered very nicely. <laughs> Oh, 
Thank you. I actually wrote that was my my one part of writing. Yeah. Did uh, you that, write that? Yeah, that was actually mine. Um, uh, I, I really don't know what. Very good. Yeah, I think it was. I was looking at the rest of the lyrics that were written and, and, you know, kind of the music that was already in place. And I was trying to think of, you know, how can I kind of fit this in to what's already there? You know, we're, we're kind of talking about, you know, chemical, like really a chemical disaster, you know, like mm. just muck and ooze and, and, you know, just people being, you know, uprooted because of this, you know, what really kind of fits and, and you know, going to be a little bit powerful it's going to be a little bit dark um mm. and the, it just kind of like popped into my head you know certainly that you know after the fact we looked at it and went wow that, you know that, that really did fit in kind of nicely and as drew mentioned yeah. you know all of these years later you know we look and and that song's you know still kind of has meaning and, and it has a place yeah. in, in yeah. like in today's world um strangely enough you know our, our long long lost drummer and compadre um the, the cemetery <laughs> that he is buried in is is near um a chemical dumping site um that's super right. fun okay site. yeah and okay. in fact i'm remembering now that when we were when we were doing this uh, the Superfund program to clean up these orphaned abandoned sites was kind of really hitting steam. And there were several in northeastern Massachusetts near Lowell, where, where, where Chris grew up. So like Woburn was kind of all over the news one of those summers when we were when we were writing tunes too. So it was it was more than one thing, but Love Canal was sort of the thing that kind of opened my eyes to it. And then all of these other things. And yeah, where where Matt lays at rest is literally a hundred yards from a, a now pretty well cleaned up but still active super fun site. Crazy stuff. Very interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I thought those thought those lyrics were very Aussie Osborne or very Black Sabbath. Uh, the lives of our children, some die in the womb. They're born just to be encased in society's endless tomb. Very good. Um, okay, the next song is like, it changes gear quite a lot and it, it feeds into something we were talking about earlier where you probably had different influences and were maybe writing songs that you felt were possibly going to be popular should something you know should you have had some success but won't play the fool anymore like i thought this was um i thought it was a bit of a journey style chorus that's what i wrote here uh it said a standard breakup song <laughs> which which it, it's a bit jarring after this, the chemical zone to be going into won't play the fool anymore uh because like there's not nothing i can read into the lyrics really other than the fact that somebody was hard done by in a relationship um so there's a bit of a contrast there between subject matter, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, I think we, you know, again, you know, back to Drew writing all of the lyrics for that one, but, you know, just in having to sing the two different songs, um, going from one to the other. Yes, it was definitely going from really dark, makes you think about things a little bit and, and hopefully, you know, make you aware of what we're doing to the planet um, as opposed to, yeah, I don't really like what you've done to me, woman. So, so um, you know, we're not having any more of that. So kind of thing. And, and being more of the, like, kind of the popular, like, hopefully getting, you know, back in the day, you think getting some, some radio play, getting getting some, you know, some publicity from that and, and kind of being the, the kind of, yeah, that catchy tune that, you know, you 
these days we call them earworms. Um, you know, earworms, you get it in your yeah. head and, and you, you get it in your head and you just, you know, you're singing it for the next three weeks um, be, because <laughs> you just can't get it out. You said I was your man. Look me in the eye and hail my hand. While you made such a fool out of me. So is that a calculated earworm, Andrew? Uh, that's a good question. I I definitely... So as a young songwriter, I did so much more on instinct rather than craft, right? The, You know, I, I look back at the songs I wrote in, in the Nor'easter days and, and, you know, lyrically I can hear that I was in my early 20s, but... At the same time, I, I listen to how the melodies and how the structure of, you know, verse versus chorus, and there's always something different going on too. You know, we shift gears a lot, and um, that that tune is one of those where the gear shifting wasn't maybe necessarily done in a way that was aimed at being super commercial as much as what's a really cool contrast, you know, like the echo on his voice on the chorus, don't want to hear you talk, like that that back talk thing that's coming, it, that's sort of like part of what sticks in my head when I hear it anyway, and then mm. the 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 melodicness of all of the, the guitar things that are going on around that, and then just kind of put the pedal to the floor in the chorus is like, the dynamic range of what we did in a lot of our songs, I think was... Um, you know, maybe a little bit more like our 70s forebears than, than uh, you know, 80s where everything is like kind of compressed and squished and like, let's make it as loud as we possibly can kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of yeah, dynamic I mean, like it, go, it goes into a, a like great guitar breakdown around the 320 mark and then has a fantastic solo after that. So it's like um, maybe a radio song, but like a guitar part that probably isn't written for a radio song afterwards as well <laughs> where, you're, where you were shown your musical chops um you have a song next called the king i thought this was an unusual start like an off time kind of riff it reminded me of rush again this seemed to me about to be about a breakup um but then um some lyrics kind of stood out to me as like the king is filled with sorrow there's shame about his crown an angel from the heavens has come to cast him down. And I was wondering, is that something that was written about current events at the time? It sounds like the downfall of, of somebody in power. That's a good question too. Um, as probably um, Weed plus Lord of the Rings. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm, <good. laughs> I'm giving you too much credit here. <laughs> 
But you know, it it was we were we were sort of preoccupied a bit with world events, and at the time, of course, the Soviet Union was a big deal, mm. and yet it was around the time that. The I remember distinctly um, the second bass player, like Chris, was also of um, uh, intensely Polish descent, and solidarity was kind of like the intensely big Polish. Yes, intensely Polish. I mean, we're <laughs> we're talking. <laughs> so uh, um, there was this sort of like, golly, do you think the empire will ever fall? Kind of thing, and never imagining that you know within. Not only our lifetimes, but a relatively short mm. period of time, the whole the whole thing was going to change. So we were sort of, and, and the other thing was how much heavy metal was catching on in Europe, how much the young people of Eastern Europe were wanting to rock, and it's like you know you can you can try to keep the metal heads down, but maybe not. And I think that shows up not only in this song, but in Cosmic Metalhead and and, yeah. and maybe a couple others too. Is this this sort of like uh, kind of focus on um, these mythical authority figures like kings and 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 wizards and stuff and 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 uh, and sort of you know kind of having a little bit of fun with it and yet finding that like all things there's more threads connected to it than you you might have originally imagined so you, you mentioned cosmic metalhead which I want to talk about because the vocals there are quite different it seems like there's layered vocals in that song um, and it seems to be like maybe the only time you really experimented with that on the song what was the inspiration for that well for the ensemble vocals um, it was Chris and I singing two or three tracks worth um, and of course we had eight track reel to reel right so we're making do with like I think we both did maybe the low part together and we did a high part together and then he did you know obviously his lead vocals but very much uh i i feel like it was kind of a, a lead the crowd kind of thing follow the cosmic metalhead um to me that's how i hear him singing it is that sort of like come on out and join us and mm. You know that whole that whole Eastern Europe thing again too, and, and it sounds so different for, to anything else on the album actually because of that chorus. It it, it stands out. Yeah, it, it was kind of that you know people love that when we did when we were out playing live. Um, that was really kind of the hey, let's get people going. Um, you know, let's get the crowd involved. Let's let's get them all all worked up. Um, and you know, just the the opening you know, just kind of opening riff or two of, of that song, you know, people would actually start, you know, getting all fired up because, um, you know, they kind of knew what was coming. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was, you know, the, for me, like vocally singing that song, that was kind of the, hey, let's get people, you know, let's get people really fired up with this. You know, we, we do that, you know, we try to get people fired up again a little bit later on in the CD and, you know, Rock Time in Your Town, which is that, you know, kind of party kind of tune. Um, but I think they were both you know, kind of meant, at least for me anyway, of, you know, being that let's get the crowd involved a little bit. It's something that, you know, playing them live, we can get the crowd singing along. Mm. You know, I, I can, you know, kind of take that break and hold the mic straight out. Like, you know, hey, yeah, you guys sing this line <laughs> because I'm tired kind of thing. Um <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you have to write those in, yeah, if you're going to be successful. <laughs> yeah, that that song was interesting to me as well because it has like a folky intro, but then like a, like a Black Sabbath type riff follows. I said, but it also kind of the riff there kind of remind me of Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Um, it has that kind of familiarity to it, um, and then it goes into that kind of 
chorus and yeah it's, there's just so much going on with that um there's like a there's a bass and and guitar kind of dueling solos thing later on uh, which is fantastic and then it just it turns into a harmony like it's there's there's so much uh, you know that's that. something that we did do deliberately as part of our sound you know we're basically a heavy metal power trio is four guys right the, the three instrumentals <laughs> and the vocal we don't do math we do metal so <laughs> but um that that's and and it was in the king too we we i think it was right around the time i first heard talus with Billy Sheehan and hearing the bass as a solo instrument like that. And I was like, man, what are we doing with the bass? Holy cow, we could do so much more with the bass than just like backing up the guitar solos. So we literally um, mm. made a point of writing parts where even if the bass was doing a, a backing thing to the guitar, they would do little things within it together. Like you'll hear it and won't play the fool anymore. There's places where the bass mm. will harmonize the guitar for just a beat or two, and then they're gone. And it's like you don't really even know it's happening. You just mm. feel it pop out of the mix for a minute. And with Metalhead, that that harmonized bass and guitar, you know, the bass getting its equal footing as a melody instrument, that was something that we were really interested in exploring. And I, I've written Rush down in my notes a few times. Like, were, were Rush a big influence on you? Yeah. And and it was as much because of Getty Lee as anything. You know, the, the, the timing things, but also how Getty Lee's, uh, his bass playing was always superb, sublime, appropriate, but like daring, doing all yeah. kinds of stuff. No, yeah, it's, it's, it's not exactly what you would have expected, kind of. Yeah. And that Rickenbacker, too. I would have loved to have had a Rickenbacker to do the recording. (laughs) That would have been great. Okay. So, yeah, you had an instrumental song called In Poseidon's Realm. Um, To me, this is like a a melting pot of of influences. It's like a very heavy open. Uh, Then I thought, like, what the the main riff, the the intro riff, kind of reminded me of Leonard Skinner. Then it was like, I said, plenty of Rush, proggy stuff. Uh, plenty of riffing and soloing and then I was like to myself what inspires a song like this is this leftover pieces from songs that you couldn't fit into a song or is it a jam session or what inspires or what sorry what inspires a song like in Poseidon's realm well one could say 90 miles because 90 miles was a distance he'd have to drive one way to come to rehearsal. So he didn't come to every rehearsal, which meant that he left us <laughs> to, our, to our own devices, usually with a sack of weed. And, you know, so it's like we would be in the rehearsal room and we always would jam on something before we got to work or like if we were taking a break from work and we would always jam on something but we knew that we were going to need an instrumental or two to give the singer a break right so we we started playing around with those little bits and i think matt's the one who said let's make it in seven four in this first part Mm. i was like all right that 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 i love the way it twists around and does all of that and i think the hendrixy jam in the middle was my idea um but it was it was kind of just it's sort of like kind of add on this and add on that and then when we heard how it all went together it was like you know that's really pretty cool yeah happy accident and there's there's a, a bass breakdown around 344 i've written here but it has guitar on top and it's like it's like the guitar is almost the vocal line that you didn't have um 
So I was wondering, was this song written for vocals or did you just write it? No. No. Okay. No. I've always said that I, I tend to craft my guitar parts um, with kind of a melody in mind. They may do like odd sounding things. They may do weird rhythmic things, but there's always sort of a, a, a melodic something or other going on. And sometimes the melody is the main thing. And right there is one of those times where it's just like it's air over that bass. It's just mm. letting the bass have its space. Okay. Throw the bass player a bone. Yeah, and I always loved it because it did give me a break. And, and the only, you know, there is a little difference between the way that song was actually recorded in the studio and, and the way it was played live. I did have one musical part when we played it live. Um, Matt had a cowbell on his on his kit. Um, and, ah, and, more cowbell. And, and more cowbell. And, and there were a couple of, a couple of instances where save for me drinking a beer while while the boys were playing and jamming that I would actually get to take a drumstick and, and smack a cowbell a couple of times. Um, that was just you know, kind of my favorite part of the song was, you know, that's the only time Matt ever let me touch his kit was just to hit that cowbell once or twice. <laughs> um, everything else was off limits. So, um, and, and again, as I mentioned earlier, with good reason. With good reason, yeah, very good. Okay. Um, the song What's Been On Your Mind, I said it sounds very much like Def Leppard in the intro. Uh, and I said the vocals actually sound like Def Leppard too. Chris, were you trying to imitate Joe Elliott of Def Leppard around this time? Or? Not at all. Um, I, I think it's, no. just, um, it's just the way that kind of came out. Um, I certainly enjoyed some Def Leppard music, um, but they weren't really a big influence of mine and you know even to this day still are not really yeah it has that like love is like a bomber come and get it on like that type of lyric (laughs) yeah or that type of delivery sorry no and i never you know it's it's interesting because you know it's not something that i was you know consciously aware of anyway okay that's fair enough but I also said about this song that it had a a nice melodic solo that sounded like Guns N' Roses and what I wanted to ask actually was I know these songs were written maybe 1984, 85, 86 but by the time you got to record them um, and this is to both of you I suppose were you influenced by the sounds you were hearing at the time for example Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard who would have come onto the scene after the songs were written but before the songs were recorded I think maybe what's been on your mind I kind of played pretty much the way that I had written it. It was one of the first songs that I had written for Nor'easter. That was very early on. That one in Fallen Angel, maybe. Um, And so there was a sort of, you know, the the twin guitars overdubbing a second guitar. I used to do both of the parts simultaneously live, but to be able to kind of track it a little bit differently. And then I could do a little bit fancier things because I wasn't trying to play two parts at once. But for the most part, um, I think, you know, we were hearing other people doing things in the late 80s, especially Whitesnake. 
especially White Snake. I mean, when right. the Still of the Night album yeah. came out, I mean, they that was sort of like the gold standard of so much, you know, just mm. the the hooks, the guitars, the mix. Oh my God, David Coverdale sounds like he's eighty five feet tall and in in places yeah, in there, yeah, yeah. And, and it's just it's a fabulous record. And, but I don't think it influenced us as much as inspired us, you know. To there were there were there were things that were influences, and then there were things that were inspiration. And I, I think that by the time we were recording, you know, I'd been listening maybe a bit more to Eric Johnson at that point, so I was kind of conscious of trying to play a little bit more uh, cleanly, a little bit more fluently than I might have live. But for the most part, uh, it was it was kind of we didn't really change the song around a whole lot. I will confess to not knowing who Eric Johnson is. Oh, well, <laughs> the 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 Lord and Master of the Stratocaster from Austin, Texas. Oh, right. have, have some fun. Cliffs of Dover, I'm sure you've heard it. Possibly. Okay, I'll look it up afterwards. Um, <laughs> he, may he be one of these musicians who's popular in the U.S. who hasn't made it over to these shores? Could that be a possibility? I don't know. I've, ne- I've never even heard his name, to be honest. Huh. Well, I, I guess I've left you with at least one mystery tonight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll look him up afterwards. All right. Um, in the interest of time, I will move on to Battle Cry. Um, this kind of returns to the mythology of one of your earlier songs. It's... Um, uh, it's like uh, about warriors and swords and battles and things like that. For example, it's like, feel the thunder, feel our warriors, hear our battle cry. Let the swords fall on the vain ones, fear our battle cry. To me, I have said this could have been a man of war chorus. Um, so you have, a, you have quite the eclectic mix of themes for your songs. And this one kind of finishes off the album. Um, the last song is obviously an instrumental. Uh, on that kind of battle kind of mythology, kind of sword and sorcery theme, was that a deliberate move? That was the last song I think we wrote for this album. And I think we were kind of saying, you know, this, this thrashy kind of thing that other bands are doing is pretty cool. Uh, we wanted to kind of do something that was really speedy, double-kicky. Um, and that, that again, you know, that, that might have been a, that might have just been having spent a little too much time buried in the pages of Lord of the Rings, and uh, you know, just it was it was kind of the way the story sort of unfolded. I don't know that it was necessarily uh, all by design. It was kind of one of those scratch out the lyrics in twenty minutes, and hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and I don't think we edited them a whole lot. That's mm. uh, one thing I've gotten a little bit better about as I've gotten a little more um, quote unquote seasoned and mature. Mm. Uh, is the 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 editing process is a little bit more built in now than it, than it was then um we just wanted to play something hard and fast and the lyrics really did kind of fit that pretty well very good and, I, and of course i love i love hearing chris singing those first lines over the acoustic guitar because that's like just total shift of gears right out of the box i, I was just gonna ask chris do you have a preference with the types of lyrics you sing so like some of these songs are like you know Rock Time in Your Town is very much an 80s kind of hair metal song, but like Battle Cry is, is very much not. And and you have a lot of things in between. Uh, do you have a preference for the types of lyrics that you sing? Um, not really. Um, I enjoyed just about all of them. 
um, Battle Cry was always just a little tough because we usually always did that towards the end of a show as well. So you start to get a little tired, and that's when the fastest song really kind of now we're we're going to end this on a, on a real high note and a real fast note because we want everybody to stay kind of pumped up and, and cranked up for a little bit you know once we're once we're off the stage and, and packing up we want people to you know still be kind of you know jamming out in their own right um so that was always a little tricky for me um to sing only because it is it's it's really fast um and so when you get tired at the end of the night you know you're looking to just kind of wind down easy we went the opposite <laughs> route we went you know no rest for the weary uh, or the wicked or the you know however we want to phrase that um let, let's finish this on a, on a real fast note and can't it was fun um not always wasn't always my favorite you know i know it was coming and you know depending on the night it was kind of like oh god <laughs> it's coming i know it's coming and i've got to try to oh, dear. try to keep a little gas in the tank for this one but uh, but no yeah. they were all kind of fun and it's just i think it made it fun for me because it was so diverse um you know it was it wasn't just like same old same old you know yeah. listening listening to the music in you know in, in the late 80s and you know some mm. of the bands that were out there so you could take oh, an yeah. entire cd's worth of music mm. And every single song kind of sounded like every other song on the CD about, or on the album. screwing a chick, basically, the whole album. Uh, exactly, you know. And, <laughs> right, and, yeah. And, you know, the lyrics may have changed just a little bit, and the music may have changed just a little bit. Ever but, so but slightly, you yeah. could really yeah. just plug, you know, any one song off of a CD and say, yeah, they all sound kind of the same. Whereas, yeah. you know, ours really yeah. didn't. So, you know, we, we No, certainly not. Certainly not with that album, no. Okay, and the, the album finishes off on Hymn of the Oceans. It's kind of like nice twin, twin lead guitar instrumental there. And then you have Rain as the outro of the album. Was there any particular reason you had the sound of Rain finishing out the album there? It's it's actually a surf. Oh. It's lightning lightning over a surf. Okay. And that was Dustin's idea. Um, I, I We did the... We did all the work for the last year up at um, where I'm headed tonight, actually, um, Cabin Studios, which is where my longtime bandmate, Les Thompson, who is one of the founding members of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, that's his studio and his his uh, stepson does all the engineering now. Les is mostly retired. Um, and Dustin is a rock drummer and a rock guy. And so when he got a chance to work on this album for the last year he really put a lot of heart into it and there's a lot of really cool special effects like that that we couldn't have done uh, very easily back in the 80s so it's actually the sound of a storm approaching over the ocean right well that's very appropriate obviously with the name of the album and the band uh okay so that is probably gonna do it for this interview that's nor'easter talking about the album before the storm which was recorded in 1989 and it's just been released in 2022. Where can people find you should they wish to contact you or buy some of your music or anything like that? Oh, we would love to, we would absolutely love to hear from your from your listeners. It would be a fabulous thing. We have a, we have a website 
nor'easter.rocks. Why doesn't every band have nor'easter-type.rocks type domains, right? We do, and uh, nor'easter.rocks is the main place. The Bandcamp website is where we're selling it, streaming it. It's on all the streaming platforms, um, and we would be absolutely thrilled. So follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, we're in both of those places too. Um, but most of all, if you enjoy what you're hearing, let us know because uh, it, it'd make our whole day. And thank you for having us on too. Appreciate that. Sorry, I'm gonna correct. I'm gonna, I'm gonna correct myself again. Your <laughs> album is called "Calm Before the Storm." <laughs> I was too busy trying to do my outro there and got caught up in it there. I'll correct it. Don't worry. Calm before the storm. Um, Chris, any any final words for the listener? No, uh, you know, I appreciate that. We certainly, as Drew said, you know, Fergal, we are so grateful to have, you know, this audience with you and with your audience. Um, and we're really hoping that, that you know, your listeners you know, check us out and hopefully they enjoy what they hear. And that would make my day, you know, as a somebody that, again, you know, once the, the band kind of went our separate ways um, when life did happen, um I wasn't somebody that could just, you know, fit in with another band. You know, that was kind of my, mm. I, I made my choice to be a part of that band um, and not just a band. Um, I, I did actually try with a couple of other bands, one in Connecticut with some other friends of ours from, you know, Connecticut, but I felt like, I was willing to make that 90 mile drive pretty much every week, if not, you know, every other week for this band. I wasn't, prepared, mm. wasn't really prepared to do that with another group of guys um, because I, these guys were just special. Um, I did also, I did also, you know, kind of try with a, a local band back in my hometown of in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, and we jammed a couple times and it just wasn't right. I just didn't feel like that was right for me. It, it was, like I say, I was, I wanted to be part of this band and, and it worked out the way it worked out back then. And, and you know, for what it was worth, you know, we weren't necessarily all happy that life happened and we had to go our separate ways. Um, but it was what it was. And now to have this opportunity, you know, 30 plus years later to have it kind of come back to life and, and you know, give new, new voice to stuff that, you know, we'd only dreamed about back in the back in the 80s it was just fantastic um and again so you know it's so grateful to have you know someone like yourself you know being willing to to give us our our time um you got to get our story told a little bit um well do you sure. know what it's not it's it's a two-way street i love a comeback story and in fairness i love a story about a band so it's great for me to have you both on as interviewees, as guests on the podcast, because I love hearing these stories, and that like me, I obviously <laughs> need people to come on the podcast. That's what keeps me afloat as well. But it's always much better when it's a really interesting story like Thank this. You. So I'm very grateful to have both of you, Fantastic. Andrew and Chris, on the show, and I would welcome you back at any point as well. So best of luck in the future. Best of luck in all of your endeavors, whatever they happen to be. If you do happen Thank to record you. a new EP Slantia. or anything like that, best of luck with that. <laughs> at this point, I'm just going to say, that's, at this point, yes. <laughs> Slantia, yeah, very good. So that's been Nor'easter on Feckin' Metal. Check them out, and I will see you next time.
All right, so that was Andrew and Chris from Nor'easter, or Drew, as you may have heard him being called. I wasn't quite comfortable enough to call him Drew yet, but maybe next time I speak to him I will. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting interview, some great nuggets in there. I'd be looking forward to seeing that video footage if it's ever released. And here's to Matt, the original drummer of Nor'easter, who died almost 20 years ago exactly now. Rest in peace, Matt. Three bands in one, calculated earworms. I don't know, you decide. I'm going to leave you with a song from their current album, Calm Before the Storm. This is The Chemical Zone, which you heard a clip from earlier, but which I'm going to play in full now. I hope you enjoyed it. I will see you next time for Virtual 11 Part 7 Million. I can't even remember. Until then, here is The Chemical Zone. Silent killer, looks divine and deadly true.